Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Welcome. Here we are. We missed last week, but we are back and better than ever this week with Resolve Riffs. This week, we've got Chris Schindler, who I'm pretty sure was our most popular guest in terms of podcast engagement over the last six months or so. And um, Chris, I think we spent about an hour and a half, maybe a little longer than that with you in our initial podcast, Rodrigo and I. And then there's like another hour afterwards of kind of postmortem on that conversation yep. and, and then yep. lots of lots of grist under the mill since then. Um, so we're really tickled to have you back on. For those who've been hiding under a rock and don't know Chris, maybe Chris just give a brief overview of your uh, professional journey. Uh, sure. So I spent uh, 18 years, um, at, or a bit over 18 years at Ontario Teachers, where I started in the uh, asset liability modeling group. Uh, joined a, a nascent little team called TAA, which turned into tactical asset allocation, which turned into the capital markets group. Uh, while I was there, uh, uh, I sort of founded uh, the sort of the macro systematic team and, we, and, and, and ran that through to uh, 2016. Which was not, not, that was sort of a risk parity, CTA, global macro, risk factor, alternative risk premium, equity quant, volley kind of stuff. Like, so, like anything, it was a very, very broad mandate. Uh, anything liquid and systematic. Uh, and we also uh, had, had a, it was a pretty cool seat because we also invested in managers uh, through a good chunk of that starting in like late 2008. So, uh, so that, was, that was a really, really cool seat. Uh, in 2016, teachers created a new portfolio, a new, a new department called Portfolio Construction Group, uh, which sort of took over ownership uh, of total fund oversight, uh, really, or at least kind of shared it with the board, whereas before the board completely owned it. And so we, uh, we worked closely with the new CIO, uh, at total fund issues, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about today, I guess. Um, and, uh, and then um, uh, in 2018, I... Uh, I resigned from teachers and I, I took some time off and I spent the last uh, little bit uh, working on putting together uh, my own little personal project, which is uh, trying to start a business uh, and a hedge fund. Right. Which my is where heart. you are today. Right. Yeah. So you're, you've spent the last few months you had, you built this suite of strategies, um, you know, over the last few years, you've been sort of refining that and building structures and, and getting seed assets and all that kind of stuff for the last little, little while. Um, and you know, you're, you're yep. launching launching your own fund, right? So, so yep. that's great. So, we we named this podcast. What was it? Um, in, in, investing navigating in the impossible market. With, navigating an impossible market, exactly. With, <laughs> yeah. with so those are my words. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, it's clickbait. So, we all we, we got it. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. But you know, but we we were sort of briefing before, and I know Mike and I had like an hour long conversation about this exact topic earlier today. We spent a lot of time, probably half the time over the last several riffs, 
um, addressing some of the reasons why it's it, this market is really hard in, in terms of trying to achieve required returns. And um, so, you know, we, we were briefing before this, right, about some of the ideas that you've been bringing to um, pension boards and others who are interested in how to think about this market and how to, like, you know, let's go back to basics. How can we think about optimal portfolio construction and capital market expectations and filling some of the holes? So, you know, I don't know. Do you want to try and take us through that narrative arc uh, to get us going? Sure. So, so uh, I wasn't I wasn't expecting to come in and monologue, but I did I did have this presentation. No, no, don't worry. We'll interrupt you. Okay, a year ago, there you go. So I have this presentation. Okay, wait, wait. Ago. Before you do it, let's yeah. have a cheers oh, for right. the, oh, yeah, cheers. The cheers. end of portfolio management, cheers. whatever we're calling it, this episode. Absolutely. I'm drinking my wine out of a pint glass. Oh, I love the I love the wine, the Italian wine glass you got going there. That's fantastic. I saw you guys were all wearing blue last time, so I thought I'd I'd spice it up. Shake it up. Shake it up. Here we go. So cheers, guys. Great to do this again. Cheers, Chris. I love is that salmon? Is that is that the color you've got on today? Is it salmon? Uh, I was going with salmon. But yeah, yeah, it's like pink. It's a nice like salmon's (laughs) just an upscale pink. Yeah, totally. Uh, I got a Bruce. I literally almost wore the exact same shirt and the exact same brand. There you go. Literally the exact same thing. It looks looks way better on Chris, man. (laughs) Okay. So, so you have uh, have to do that every time. Yeah. So, so literally, as we were talking about, like, what to talk about today, uh, and you guys have already taken some really juicy topics, like you know, leverage and tail mitigation, and it's like I can, I can either throw my two cents in on those pieces, but like I did give this presentation a year ago. So the, the data is all a year old, but it's okay because it's hundred years of data. So not much has changed. Uh, and I thought like there's some concepts in here, uh, which I think um, highlight the difficulty. Right. And I'm not saying like, like this is a challenge. Like this is not going to be an easy next. I don't think it's going to be an easy next 10 years for a CIO. And, and I, and I say that it's not impossible. It's not the impossible markets, but it's not going to be as easy as the last 10 or 15 years have been. And I don't think anyone looks back the last 15 years and man, that was easy. But I think when we look at this, we'll say it was easier than it's going to be. And so there's a couple things about that. And the first piece I think we got to say is like, look, from today's starting point, and we'll talk a little bit about why we are where we are today's starting point. But I'm going to argue uh, expected returns are, are quite low from today's starting point on almost every major asset class. And so that makes it really hard from a portfolio construction perspective when you go, do you like equities here? Do you like bonds here? Do you like infrastructure? Do you like real estate? Do you like private equity? What do you like here? And, and and it's a small set. And then you say, what about strategies? And you say, well, like all those quivers in our, you know, like all, all those arrows in our quiver over the last 10 or 15 years are also starting to look pretty attacked because, because man, there's so much money all chasing and doing the same things. And I'd say like, here's the problem with investing. If you do the same thing as everyone else, at best, you can expect median returns, right? You can only expect to do as well as everyone else. If you do the same thing as everyone else and you can get there late, you should expect below average returns. The only way to outperform the market is to get there early or to do different things. And but, not, but not too early. You not can't too be early, too early. Not too different. You can't, and not randomly different. Nine out of right. 10 different things are going to lose money. Like at the end, or maybe 50% are going to lose money. I don't know. But the, yeah. you know, the end of the day, that's the challenge. And, and there's that classic, what got you here isn't going to get you there because the last 10 or 15 years will not repeat. Yep. And the games that we learned and the games that worked over the last 10 or 15 years will not be as good over the next 10 to 15 years. You go, what do you do? It's not impossible. It's just harder. 
And so, the, and, and that's where I think, and that's where I think the, the proper foundation and starting point is paramount. And then, and then building up on it is also super important. And, and, and you know, it's a different challenge for a trillion dollar pension plan or, you know, half trillion dollar than it is for uh, a $20 billion pension plan, or it is for a, uh, you know, a billion dollar family office than it is for someone who's just trying to, you know, invest a million dollars. And, and, and obviously there's different challenges across the board. And I'm going to say there's a sweet spot in the middle there where the opportunity set doesn't look all that bad. And you certainly have a competitive advantage probably for the first time in your life as a relatively smaller investor where you can still do a lot of the stuff where the big guys are, are, are you know, as, as they are forced to fall back to the more beta investments, uh, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them. Yeah. All right. Do you need to share your screen? Ani, can you I, allow I, him to share it? All right, here we are. So, and this is, by the way, this presentation is a year old, so it doesn't include any of the craziness from this year. Um, but I think the story still holds up. And, and the point is, on one hand, you think the CIO's challenge, right? I got to make 5% real over the long, everyone's 4.5% real, 6% nominal. Like everyone's got their certain numbers, but they're roughly speaking, I got to make 5% real. And I got to do that, you know, in perpetuity. And that doesn't sound so hard, does it? I don't know. I mean, it sounds maybe not so bad. Oh, and I... And this is my definition of risk. And the, this presentation, by the way, has, has no equations and is, it is the least technical presentation I've ever given in my life. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to define risk as I don't want to blow up along the way. And, and what is a blow up? Blow up is different for everyone. A blow up is I didn't meet my, you know, my, my, my funding obligations. It means I couldn't pay my cash flows. It might mean for me, I got fired. Like everyone's going to have a different definition of what blow up means. But as a CIO or as a CEO, however you define risk, you go, I got to make that 5% real and I don't want to blow up. And, and as I said, and this was a year ago, you know, it's like certainly true today as well. There's nothing really obviously cheap and easy right now. I don't, you know, there's probably pockets of relative valuation, but I don't think anyone look at it and say, relative to 10 years ago, that's a that's a steal. Um, and I'm just going to argue that the typical, and I know you guys have spent a lot of time on risk parity on the 60-40 portfolio. The typical 60-40 equity-centric portfolio is way riskier than people think it is in the long run. It, it is not nearly as safe as people think it is. And, 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 and that's where I think this is probably less intuitive. And, and, and I'm going to do a massive cheat here. And I'm going to say 60-40. Let's just call it equities for a second. Because we forget the amount of bonds yep. and the types of bonds. And forget that discussion for a second. Say, and a 60-40 portfolio is basically, um, it's like, it's like you, instead of putting all your money in equities, you just put like half your money in equities. And, and so it's just think of it as a delevered equity portfolio. In fact, I just said, like, let's just take an equity portfolio, scale it to about 10% volatility, which is about the equity piece of a 60-40, and just say, that's what a 60-40 portfolio is. So I'm not going to include bonds in any part of this discussion for a second here. And let's just look, when you say most investors, and it's not just pension plans, most retail, most high net worth, most people have, have their wealth tied up in equities. Yep. And they will do well when equities do well, and they'll do badly when equities do badly. And, 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 and so, so, but they go, that's great because don't equities pay you 10% a year or 12% a year? What's your expectation? And they've certainly been paying a ton recently. And, and I think part of that is because this is US equities, you know, starting at $1 in 1926 and going to today. And it's like, like okay, so like, I guess the, the uh, 2000 to 2010 looks a little ferocious, but hey, you know, it keep, just keep buying, keep going. It always works out. And, and man, look at that run recently. And, and I think like, especially into 2000, did it ever look amazing? And, and, and the problem with this is this is the exact same data, the exact same chart. It's just in arithmetic instead of geometric. I think this is log form, but, but basically the point in this, this is the, actually the equity process. 
A 30% pull in 1929 looks the same as a 30% pull in 1975, looks the same as a 30% pull in 2008. These are real returns, just scaled to 10% volatility. And that's what equities look like. And okay, I lied because there's one equation in this whole presentation and you just gotta know what a sharp ratio is. And it's just to say, if we're running around 10% risk, roughly how much return do you make? And in this case, if the sharp ratio is around 0.5, it means you make about 5% real. Well, amazing. Isn't that all we have to do as a CIO or a CEO is make 5% real? Why don't I just do a 10% delevered equity portfolio? Super easy, right? And the answer is, and, and, and I'm just gonna like full caveat here. This is statistically bunk. I completely made up the statistic. But if you look at the top, all I did was I took that arithmetic growth curve and I just filled in the high watermarks with like red ink. So it's like this giant red water. And, and that red water is the pain of equities because you think there's two pain points when you, when you own something. The first is it drops a lot, right? So you can see at each of those things from, from, from if you put all your money in in 1929, well, in 1931, you're, you've lost 35% of your money at 10% volatility. But you've also, pain is either the amount of the loss or the length of the loss. Because remember, you're, you're trying to make 5% real. If 15 years later, you're flat, well, you're so far behind where your, your actual projections are that you're, you've blown up. And so the problem with equities, you can see when you glance at this, in US equities over the last 100 years, is they make way more money than you need them to for big pockets of time, and they do way worse than you can afford for them to do for also large pockets of time. So equities alone and the equity risk factor just doesn't survive that second piece of the equation. I want to make 5% real for the long term, but I don't want to blow up because they will blow you up. They have, they have like absolutely demonstratively blown people up over and over and over again. And we're very spoiled by the last you know, 10 years and arguably 20 years. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, Chris, how to leave a guy back online. I just want to take a moment to point out that everything on here is for entertainment purposes only and should <laughs> not be used for your own investment advice. So just like Chris said, most of it's just made up. So, I mean, <laughs> that's and yeah. it will be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> yes. And I like I like the angle he's he's getting after that when we every one of our presentations has that fact right that a 60 40 portfolio is actually 90 percent mm -hmm. equities 10 percent bonds but just to say okay given that it's 90 percent equities let's just call it equities and as we speak with pension plans i mean the 60 40 is just such a powerful thing it's i want to believe that i that i i use that as a trope that i use it as like something that used to happen 10 years ago and it works so well for for communicating with others that i keep on using it but Time and time again, when I sit down with institutions, it is the same thing. And the only thing that may have changed is that they've gotten more private equity on their books. But that's so they've more, gotten equity, more equity centric, more yeah. levered equity. So it's no longer nine and, and decrease like their liquidity. I think another thing that's important that that um, I don't know if Chris was going to allude to this at some point, but he's talking about a, a portfolio that was funded with with one one cash flow at one point, right? And so what you'll have is. An endowment, the reason you want five real is because most endowments pay about 5% and you'd like to maintain the purchasing power of the endowed asset so that that endowed asset provides 5% in perpetuity or or maybe can grow a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes it's four or 5%. So once you introduce the the income aspect, you know, whether if it is an endowment, in fact, and there is dis distributions happening, those red areas become... 
I mean, catastrophic. incredibly catastrophic, right? So how does Yale or how does um, an endowment from, you know, a hospital or, or for, for, for um, some sort of cancer funding or whatever, how would they, so you're going to fund, uh, you're going to have the ability to fund and grow for a 15 or 20 year period. And then you're going to have a period where you, you, you can't fund the university. You, you can't pay for the tuitions. You, there's just a decreased amount of potential opportunity to, to fund. Um, and so you're just going to get fired in those situations or someone else is going to come in and do something else. Um, is there, it, did we reach out to Chris at all on a cell phone? And all I'm this sure. Hang on my text right now. Yeah, just to, it out. I think the point though, is that what pe- most people don't realize because we are so myopically, and this is this is both cognitive and emotional salience. We're so myopically focused on recent experience, right? The recent experience has been if you invested in equities, especially US equities, essentially you won the lottery. I mean, this has been one of the best, if not the best, notwithstanding whatever the recent couple of months. But prior to that, the best 10-year period for US equities in history. And US equities are the best performing global market over the mm-hmm. last 120 years. So you have the best period for the best market in history over the last 10 years. This is what sets investor expectations. And what's, it's what makes it so difficult to stress the importance of diversification, right? This whole feast or famine. Literally, US equity investors won the lottery over the last 10 years. This is mm-hmm. a lottery ticket. They won the lottery. You know, if you go back to 1966, you've got it back to 2000. There's lots of examples where 10 years, even 20 years, you get flat real returns in equities in general, but especially U.S. equities, because there are macroeconomic regimes where foreign equities completely dominate U.S. equities. Obviously, the knots were a really good example of that, where emerging markets well, and EFI were so good. Because I'll just kind of continue on the same point that um, Chris was on. Uh, a couple of slides that I just recently created. Let me know when I'm when I'm sharing, Ani. Um, And, uh, you know, the truth is that, (laughs) can you see me? Yeah. Yeah. What you have now is this is just a, we kind of all know this, right? But not only is it difficult uh, when you have a portfolio that's 90% equities, but it's even more difficult when you have 90% equities and uh, and you're in the North American markets that are the most expensive in the world, right? And when you're just looking at the 60-40 portfolio, i.e. the 90-10 portfolio, this, these are the real returns from 1900 to uh, today, or well, maybe not today, but you can, you know, 20 years of not making money, 20 years, 14 years, and so on, right? So it is a problem to just depend on that one, um, that one premium one bet. Yeah. to provide that return when, you know, what I show here is this is the the um, hold on now you're stealing the, Chris's thunder, yeah. man. He's Chris mad. You're like jumping so ahead. When did you lose me? I was tired. We you, lost you when you were about to give us the answer to all of our problems. Uh, we lost you. No, we lost you after you were. No, no, no. Well, we lost the answer. All your problems are solved. No, it's just drinks. Okay. No, I mean, literally, it was you were just talking. I, about I, will, I will end this monologue in like two minutes. So I, I yeah, yeah. But like, like, you were, no, you were we, talking about the deep, the deep reds. That's, yeah, that's deep where red. you were at. Pain. So the pain. So, so the pain train. We are. Do you see my slide? I guess you don't see. Oh this. yeah, Ani, no. Ani, can Ani, you share uh, Chris's? Share Listen, Chris, your monologue was interrupted for five minutes, man. So it's no longer a monologue. Yeah. You got lots of time. Right. Like, don't speed right, through this. It's so good. I want to make sure we get to it all. 
Okay. No, no, you've jumped so far ahead. We literally right. were at the like, no, no, uh, we were at the, the red, drawdown the chart for equities. For the pain oh trade. That far the red pools. Yeah. The red pools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let me rewind. I really was talking to myself there for a while. Okay. Uh, yeah. We're like before yeah. this. Back in the back. Yeah. There we go. That's oh the one. Goodness. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me let me quickly then pop through this piece. In the top right in the box, there's about four statistics. One is the sharp ratio. It's just that's just like saying it makes four point seven percent real per year, which is not bad. Almost what we need. But the next piece is like as important. The nine point six percent. That is a there is a one in ten chance that if you put money in the S and P today, that five years from now you'll be below where you started today. And I don't unconditionally think people appreciate not that. accounting for valuation. Any starting point. Yeah. Uh, not not yeah, and, and certainly not accounting for valuations. That is just on average through time. Yeah. There is a one seventeen year period where you don't get your money back in real terms. And and then and then this number, this ninety seven, is just my made up statistic. It just literally is the area of that pain. And, and, and that's just saying length is a problem. Depth is a problem. Like, I guess like length and depth together, volume is a problem. So area is a problem. So you look at that and you go, that's equities. And I think it's fair to say that though it makes the returns you need almost, it will blow you up along the way. So it, equities alone cannot, and a 60, 40 portfolio alone cannot solve your, and I don't want to blow up along the way problem as a CIO and CEO. And, and so, so I guess like, you know, there's a lot of, hopium in this world we go like gee i just hope it doesn't happen to me in my lifetime and i think that's there's 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 that piece okay so here are in bonds uh you know i I created a role bond process on us 10 years it's um you know also scaled to 10 percent fall it's not really you know that's not focused too much on exactly how it was built but just to say like equities bonds also seem to make more money than you need for extended periods way less than you need for extended periods they also have their own pain points Interestingly, if you look at the top right, um, actually a bit better than equities, except for it has a slightly lower sharp ratio, but has a better set of other definitions of risk than equities, which is interesting because sharp ratio is, is a definite, you know, like volatility is a definition of risk, but not the only definition, obviously. Anyway, so this is now the classic stock bond risk parity story, right? And you so say you take your equity risk and you take your fixed income and if you put those guys together. Um, maybe you can maybe you can average out some of that growth risk. That's the major source of risk in equities. And so if you build that balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, and you get that stock bond risk parity, which is the risk parity that the vast majority of invest and pension plans and investors are sort of attacking. And they're probably not going fully here, but they're, at least they're, they're they're moving towards this. So hold on, I just want to make sure everybody understands what you're talking about here. So you're talking okay. about equal risk to stocks and bonds, not 50-50 yep. stocks bonds. But equal risk to stocks and bonds, which is roughly eighty percent bonds, twenty percent equities. But then leverage exactly. Up. So yep. you can probably call it forty percent bonds, and you know, like or you know, sorry, like one hundred sixty percent bonds. And, and so there's leverage, and there's we can get into that discussion. It's, it's yes. a ninety sixty. Uh, it's yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. <laughs> so, ish, so here's, ish, ish. So here's here's the thing. If if some like incredibly prescient individual in nineteen twenty nine went, you know what, I'm going to build a stock bond risk parity process and invested in it. I mean, well, they'd be a genius. They would have absolutely crushed it. The, the Great Depression becomes a bit of a nothing, but it recovers almost immediately and just goes off to the races. If you compare it to the equity curve, it's just an absolute no-brainer. It's, it absolutely kills it. And then probably you could totally you could totally get someone in 1965 who'd done this for 30 years, patting themselves on the shoulder and going like, who is better than me? I solved, like, I solved it. I broke the markets. And then this happens. And you go, oh, my God. And, 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 and you go, there, there is clearly a major problem with stock bond risk parity. There's a huge hole in it. 
because like wow that's even worse than just equities and so if you look at the if you look at just like the once again the statistics and you go it's actually got a higher sharp ratio now so apparently this is less risky than 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 either stocks or equities or has more return for the same amount of risk but the area under the curve measure says differently because there's a massive pain point and let's just be clear no one if anyone's portfolio today of 60 40 goes through that again uh none of us are in our jobs and our pensions are not you know are not met and and, and we call this a a failure of, of complete and effort proportions like our actual assumptions cannot survive five years of this uh let alone 20. so just to say there's a hole in risk parity and all the people who are just running straight risk parity are, are bearing that risk hold on there's a hole in stock bond risk parity there's a hole in stock bond risk parity right it's and so and this is now I and mean, this is pretty i think a pretty well-known framework but the issue is yes stocks and bonds balance on growth risk but it turns out they're both exposed to exploitation risk and and so if you look at that and you say your risk parity your stock bond risk parity process it's got a hole in it and you go and like you really you need another asset or another asset class that somehow can handle the inflation piece without adding too much growth risk and you say like and maybe we can try and solve this a little bit and and you know thank goodness I'm not going to call commodities an asset class, or at least they're not necessarily a positive risk premium, but we can say there's at least something we can invest in that sits on the other side of this equation. And, and, and it allows us to somewhat build a portfolio that's now kind of ish, you know, like diversified or immunized or protected from growth risk and at the same time protected from inflation risk. So this stock bond commodity risk parity process, if you want to see how it looks, it's like that looks pretty good. Now, we call this a factor balanced attack because we've said we got the two major factors and our, and so we're kind of moving out of asset class space and talking about you know risk premiums and asset classes and just for a second just think this thing is roughly balanced uh, between growth and inflation and it's a significantly stronger process now we only have it going for 1945 that's when we have like, you know the basic commodity data but this is just long equal-weighted package of commodities and equal risk those with stocks and bonds and it's a significantly better process and if you look through the statistics of it um it's got you know it's got a 20% higher sharp ratio than either stocks or bonds, and, a, and about half that area under the curve. So it's a significantly better process. Um, so there's some question, the, right? No, yeah. no, you keep going. You keep going. No, no, ask me a question, please. No, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who sort of are, are scratching their head and wondering whether commodities represent a risk premium. And you, you know, we, in our in our discussion before the we went live, we had some discussion around that. And I just think it's worth sort of, I, I, I've sort of, I've wondered this too. And to what extent can we rely on commodities, diversified commodities or risk premium? And I actually think that if you're, if you're rebalancing between commodities or maybe some sort of positive drift from rebalancing, just like the mathematics of rebalancing stochastic portfolio theory. But even then, I also wonder whether or not the idea of a risk premium is even the right way to think about it. And really it's you're buying insurance against certain conditional payoffs, right? So in an inflationary regime, on the condition of, a, of an inflationary regime, you're you're buying an insurance policy that will produce a massive payoff in that situation, right? If bonds, you're buying a, a uh, an asset or whatever, an insurance policy, they'll have a massive payoff in a disinflationary regime. Stocks, you're buying a, a an asset with a massive payoff in a, in a growth regime, right? So it's, if you don't sort of, frame it as a risk premium, but more like I'm trying to hedge against all these different risks. And I'm buying, I'm buying payoffs with structurally different payoff profiles. Yep. That may be a better or another way of thinking about it. 
A hundred percent. So I, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. From a factor perspective, we're not actually talking about risk premiums at all. We're just saying we want to say like, like. and the interesting thing about commodities, even in, even the definition I use here, I'm going to argue they don't have much of a risk premium, but they are a positive paying hedge. And you'd be crazy not to take advantage of that. Now, the other right. thing is, if you actually look at it and say, everyone starts with risk parity going stock bond risk parity because we're trying to cover growth risk. I hate bonds because they have inflation risk. A very interesting and equally compelling package is a commodity bond risk parity process. And it turns out you go, man, I can get the I can get the risk premium of bonds without the inflation risk. Like, and, and then of course the two of them together, those two packages into this three package, this three this three this three asset two factor package, looks pretty good. It is a significantly better starting point. It's not mm -hmm. perfect. And it's not ideal. And, I, and 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 you know just to run into it, this is the commodity process that I showed you. It does exactly what you needed from 1962 to 1978 in that, in that inflation shock it did really really well but from 1980 to today the real return in commodities is very very close to zero and the question is why because weren't we all told that there was an equity like risk premium in commodities weren't we all told that commodities pay money and the answer is not really not really there are risk premiums in commodities for sure but they're not the same as stocks and bonds where the risk premium is just buy some stocks and the risk premium is to the long side and buy some bonds and the risk premium is to the long side. You're finding commodities, sometimes the risk premium is to the long side, sometimes it's to the short side and it's conditional and it's constantly changing. Now, this but I is want to push world. back, right? Because yeah. I, I think, again, we've experienced this long disinflationary growth process. So if we, if, if we had experienced a, a stagflationary process, an extended stagflationary process, then obviously commodities, or not obviously, but I, I would submit that commodities would represent, a, I mean, we would look back and say, wow, commodities have a really strong premium. Possibly. It's depends just that, on the source of, it depends on the source of inflation. So, and, and you can define inflation in lots of different ways, and people do, and they even get debates on like, what is the definition of inflation? Is, is it is an increase in monetary supply? Is it an increase in the price level? Is it the increase in the price of commodities? Is it like, and, and you know, there's at least Bridgewater has their four definitions of, of, of you know, like, like of inflation risk. I, I would say uh, if it's a commodity driven inflation risk, yes, then commodities yeah. should cover it. Uh, yeah. It may not cover a monetary like, like, like inflation risk. It may well, not certain cover, commodities may, may, driven, may help. Right? May, may not. So, so, but just to say, but that also speaks to a less to a risk premium and more to the concept of a changing discount rate value to a certain extent. The question is, do they do they pay? If you just sat long this thing, would it pay you money over time? Uh, it, it, it is, is a different statement than could it be worth more or less through time, depending on different outcomes. Okay, so, yep, fair enough. And, and so I would, and I would say, if you look at commodities, there's a couple of things to pay attention to. Yeah, they do cover that inflation risk, or they did cover that one type of inflation risk that we certainly cared about in the 70s and you know late late 60s into the 1980. But they have pretty bad drawdown characteristics. I mean, this is it goes off the bottom of my chart here, um, and sometimes they lose money at the same time as equities, as everyone found out in 2008. So, sure. so you go, is it, is it a perfect diversifier? You go, no. But is it, is, it, is it a really good playground for a quant? And the answer is absolutely. Because, because it, first of all, commodities as a, as a thing is a complete misnomer. It's like saying stocks and bonds. Like it's like commodities is at least four or five pretty independent sectors, almost asset classes that almost have nothing to do with each other. So there's like, there's more in here than just one thing. And, and you say like, and from that, there's also, uh, uh, really different characteristics about like where the risk premium is at different points in time. And so, and so this is, you know, so Chris, Chris um, before we, yeah. before we move off, we, we have a, we have a, a good question that I think is related, right? So okay. Dan P asks, uh, can you effectively hedge the inflation risk for your equity bond portfolio 
with inflation tail risk positions like calls or gold or gold miners or out of the money puts on bonds, et cetera. And I think that probably the drag there is probably significantly more than what you're seeing in your in your commodities. But can you can you elaborate at all? What, what are your thoughts there? Sure. So just to run through that, you say, and, and gold is 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 certainly part of your commodity. And so when 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 you know when we were thinking about commodity protection, when I've been thinking about commodity protection, I say like like I like I said, I think there's three different types of inflation, right? So so you can say that there's monetary inflation, uh, there's price inflation. There's underlying commodity inflation, which 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 flows through, um, you know, call it like a and there's price index inflation. Yeah, and and so and so the, the you know if you kind of look at well, you can you can attack those and defend against those in, in different ways, right? You can say like I, maybe gold uh, is is a pretty good protector against monetary inflation. It might be like at least and, and the gold's interesting because gold is actually an inflation hedge and a deflation hedge. It's it's a it's it's an inflation hedge and it's a shit show hedge and 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 that's why people kind of mess up because when you actually measure the correlation of gold to inflation it doesn't look great because you're actually like realizing it's not a linear relationship at all but if you measure the like 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 the correlation of gold to inflation and and then and then and then take away like the downside the deflation piece the core like the correlation comes up significantly mm-hmm. so so gold is a, is a decent inflation hedge but not not a perfect inflation hedge but not even close if you want to do price, well, the easiest way to go at that is real return bonds or break evens. If you want to really isolate the inflation mm-hmm. piece, and if you want to talk about, well, if it comes from the commodity side, you should probably have some commodities. If it's a, you know, and and so and 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 the main source of that tends to be the energies, but like that flows through quite quickly into the ags, and, and you can see it. So you can basically see um, at least three different types of inflation. You go like, if you want to hedge inflation, you should probably have a basket of stuff that kind of attacks it from those three directions, right. just to say like, like you want to make sure you've got it kind of covered. Now, can you can you do gold miners? Well, there's a ton of business risk in that, and now you now you've introduced some equity risk into yeah. your inflation hedge. Can you buy uh, calls and puts? And you go, yes, absolutely. That is a classic form of insurance, but you're going to be paying a lot of money for it. The beauty of this approach is that these are all positive pay, negatively correlated on expectation, yeah. and 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 so yes, and you can start to think about mitigating risks if you if you feel you have a particular source of risk you want to cover, but in general. Uh, we're going to try and build the portfolio. And when I think of risk parity, and this is and this is um, this is how I've tried to explain it to people. This isn't the it's it's not it doesn't have to be a static portfolio. You don't have to you don't have to only do this. You could just, you, in fact you want to add lots to it. But I think of trying to build the portfolio. When I think of factor balanced, I'm trying to build the portfolio that I would want to have ten years from now. Mm-hmm. Right. And we talked about this in the podcast. I think, but yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. this is a distinctly different than the portfolio I want to have over the next 10 years. It's the portfolio in 10 years because I can tell you a certainty. No one has a view about whether stocks are going to outperform bonds in 10 years or whether commodities are going to outperform bonds in 10 years. It's imp- no one has an active view 10 years from now. What is the portfolio that is as best as possible active view agnostic, right? That's your starting point. Now, you can put access debt all over it if you want to, but, but what, how do you define the, the most passive you can get away with getting Without, without, without getting like ridiculous, go, this is a definition of, I think of a pretty good definition of passive. It's, it's like, I have no active use. This is the thing that's it's the, the do no harm portfolio, right? It's a, this, is, this is first and foremost, these guys protect each other. That's yeah. a great starting point. Yep. So now, as we said, though, commodities, here's the thing. They did really great till 1980. And then from 1980 to today, zero real returns. Right, and, and you said, can we do better? In fact, if you had if you had a wish list of the perfect asset to hedge your stocks and bonds, you say, I want to have inflation hedging protection. I, I want it to like ideally not have these terrible drawdowns, and I and maybe not draw down at the same time as equities. You know, and so you have this wish list of like what would be the perfect like 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 balancing asset for stocks and bonds, and you go, 
I, I mean, probably sounds ridiculous. And you say, can we build that? Now I'm going to go, I'm going to make a giant leap here and say, yep, we can. I think we can build it. You know, and, 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 and this is a very dumbed down, simplistic, sort of like simplified version of the types of things you can do. But just to say, we're going to call this an enhanced commodity process. I'm, I'm not going to talk about how it might be done, but I just say, let's just say there's ways that you might want to do this. It's got some nice characteristics. And, and, and let's just pretend, just go with me for a second and say, imagine we could build something kind of like this. If you build a balanced portfolio of equal risk portfolio of stocks and bonds and this enhanced commodity process, and that's what you got on the right, and compare it to just your equity centric portfolio, which you have on the left, you can see it's night and day. Mm-hmm. Now it's, uh, you know, you say for the same monthly volatility, it makes about twice as much money. Or the other way you can say that is if you want to, you can run it at half the risk to make the same amount of return. But the real key feature is that it's got like less than one third of that pain that the equity centric portfolio has. And, and so I think, I think it's fair to say this is like, this is a clearly uh, better starting point than an equity centric portfolio. And, yeah. it's, and, 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 and so now I'm just going to say, it looks great. Why don't we just put all our money in this and just go golfing for the rest of our lives? And the answer is because I've cheated like so badly in this in a bunch of different ways. And these are really, really important cheats because everyone, everyone commits like some part of these cheat. And I got to tell you, the reason you can't just do this and go, and the reason it's not going to be that easy. First of all, I just showed you U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds over the last 100 years. The U.S. is the top performing stock and bond market in the world over the last 100 years. And, and I guess it kind of goes without saying, if I was like, look, of the 16 major indices you know, that, that, that have been around from you know, 1900 to today, the U.S. is by far the best. In fact, if you look at the next, like I think the U.S. has got that 4.5% real. I think the next best is like 2.5% real. So you say, what do equities owe you? What should you expect out of equities over the next 10, 50, 100 years? Unless you can tell me that of the 16 largest countries today, you know what the winner is going to be and you put all your money in that, it doesn't owe you what the winner paid you over the last 100. It's probably more like what the median paid. You know, ah, that's like 250 basis points real. It's not as good as it looks. Um, the other problem with that is I said of the 16 countries that survived, you go, ah, oh, but if you, if you look at the, the biggest countries in 1900, a bunch of them went to zero. If you put your money in Russia or Egypt or Argentina, like, like, like countries that surprisingly were, you know, like, 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 like very large, Germany, like, like zeros across the board. Russia and China both went to zero. Yeah. And they were large economies Austria. back when they went, yep. when they went there. So, so, so just to say, if you follow the winner the whole way through, and if you do the median with getting, adjusting for survivor bias, it's more like 150 basis points. And that's really generous. So we've got a, like, we've got a, a real sense that equities owe us a lot more than I think they will ultimately pay. But I'm pretty sure that risk of them is an accurate representation of the risk. And that's the long term. That's not talking about today's starting point. So, so this is a difficult time. For yeah, we haven't even got there yet. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, and so the next thing is, obviously, I, I showed you a commodity model. I said, if I could have done this in 1965, look how great it was. And I said, just trust me, I can do this. Of course, I would not have known to do that in 1965. So, so there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, we started doing similar things back in 2003, 2002, um, and, they've, and they've continued to work, but you have to have a really strong argument as to why this is a persistent risk premium as opposed to just, a, hey, if I know to do this thing, here's, and, and, and you've got to hold people's feet to the fire to defend that. Fourth thing is it requires leverage, which, which, which a bunch of people can't do and a bunch of people just refuse to do 
And at the end of the day, they would rather sit on that incredibly risky equity portfolio than build a more diversified process that requires some leverage because they somehow feel that that is risky while this isn't. And, and so because I think, once again, they're caught in some of these survivor bias, uh, US-centric essentialism uh, research problems. And then the last one, capacity. Not everyone can do this. If you're a trillion dollar pension plan, it's, it's impossible to get enough inflation protection to cover your stock bond risk. And in fact, you probably don't have enough bonds either. And so you're probably just running, riding the equity process. And now your challenge as a CIO is, 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 is to, is to uh, you know, optimize that portfolio given the constraints you have, because there's, there's a whole ton of constraints in, into that optimization. If you're too small, it becomes a bit hard to do, but there is the, there's an absolute sweet spot where you can actually probably, you know, like, like, like literally for the first time say, I think I have a competitive advantage over the big guys because I think I can still do this because I think there's the capacity and, 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 and it requires a certain amount of sophistication, but it's doable. Is yeah, that right? is, so, is the capacity on the inflation hedge uh, probably to do, or probably the reason why Bridgewater worked with the U.S. government to, to launch the uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities? Uh, it could be. I'm for sure they would have been looking for their inflation protection. Absolutely. Uh, I, I I assume it's capacity. I mean, like, so so the, the, the fact is there's just not enough commodity futures out there for everyone to, like, for even a very small percentage right. of people. There's two limits as to yeah. what any one entity yeah. can own on, on that space. Well, just, right? yeah, well, 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 even and, the swaps end up back in the futures yeah, market. I mean, of they, course, they they have in, to. unless yeah. somehow you found an offset, you know, and and, yeah. and so and then and then you kind of go. So you have to come at it in different ways. And like I said, real return bonds is a pretty good one. Now, the problem with real return bonds or the challenge of them is the break even part, the, inf the inflation hedge part of it has got a negative respect to return. So so it's not a positive pay. It's a slight negative pay. Uh, that's not bad. Probably still worth doing some of it. And then you say, well, gold, is it a positive? Probably a positive expect return, at least real neutral, but probably real plus something. And it's got that nice deflation hedge piece to it. So you probably want some gold in your process. Um, and, and so you have to be a little bit creative about coming at it from, like the, especially the inflation hedge size, but because of the capacity we, limitations. We've got one other question here, too, and I think it's relevant. And, um, and, and it's just uh, um, how does this work in those, in those pinch points where oh. the correlation of assets and the drift from historical positions uh, you, well, basically, you're, you're going to get some sort of liquidity contraction like we had in, in March where you know there just isn't an asset even even you know your long dated treasuries or your shorter dated treasuries had Everything some li liquidity uh liquidity pinch points sure um, so um how does it work well, first I, I i like i said i did this last year and i couldn't show you these exact numbers um is it is it bulletproof does it does it never lose no if you look at it on the bottom right it, it's got volatility mm -hmm. um it's uh, what it doesn't have is is clustered. In fact, it's a much more normal process. At 10% volume, you'll see some 20s, you'll see some 10s, you'll see some 15s, you'll see a 25. Uh, it's a much more normal process. I, you should run away scared from any process that says it's 10% vol. It doesn't have peak to trough pulls of 15 to 20% every three to four years because it means it's not random walking. And, and when something doesn't random walk, it's almost always because the volatility has been high, hidden in higher order risk in higher moment risk. And so and you can do that. We can always take something and reduce its volatility and increase its skewer ketosis. Mostly yeah. skewer yep. selling, selling vol has been a predominant feature of doing exactly selling that. Vol, a lot of credit, a lot of insurance and mm -hmm. securities are, you know, are things that, you know, it takes a full cycle to realize the risk. And so it'll look like a sharp ratio of two until there's a minus four in there and it balances out at 0.5. Um, but that's a very, that, that, that looks more like equities, to be honest, right? You want a normal random walk process whenever you can. And you need to see those pizza truffles. You need to see losses. How does it do in March 2013? I, I'm not exactly sure. But what this isn't, what this one isn't, 
uh, is a short-term fall targeting dynamic vol process. This is a long-term, I mean, I did this monthly. I'm just trying to roughly get the positions right. I'm not trying to deal with vol clusters in a way that you would probably do in the short-term. Um, uh, it's, it's an interesting question, how did we, we can always check. Uh, my guess is okay. But the fact is um, you can't judge a process by one or two weeks. And, and I would also say, man, equities did not do well in that period either. So it's a, uh, uh, you know, better than equities is probably a fair statement. Actually, it's interesting. We've we've constantly commented on internally how the scrutiny of quant or systematic based strategies is so much higher than it is for more traditional strategies, right? If you've got a traditional manager who comes in to pitch his discretionary value quality strategy, he tells a nice little narrative. He describes it the the pitch for four or five stocks that he really likes right here and why they're the largest positions in the portfolio and the CIO feels really good and this guy knows what he's doing and, you know, it, it maps to whatever he learned in his MBA. And, but if you, if you, when you go through a quant process that everybody really begins to drill down to the details, it's like, yeah, but what are the tails and yeah, but how did they do here? And yeah, but what do we expect here? And what's, what's the, what are the go forward expectations and what, what are the capacity constraints and what's your, what's your trading costs? And like, it's amazing how when you empower people with more data, that what it does is yeah. it prompts more practice. questions. And, 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 the, and the, you know what it is as well that, that really busts me up is the the view that risk parity, that everybody's waiting for this risk parity to blow up. And when it has an, an inevitable 15%, 20% drawdown, see, I told you they were going to blow up. I told you it was going to blow up, right? There was nowhere to high Risk parity isn't real. What happens when everything correlates? And there were like three days that it correlated in March and everything yeah. went down together. And when you're levered, cool. that hurts. But it was a perfectly reasonable drawdown for a 10% volatility, a well-constructed 10 vol risk parity product cruised through this year. Mm -hmm. And yet it's in the headlines, it's risk parity blows up, right? Ask anybody, how, how do you think risk parity did that doesn't really know? They yeah. all think it blew up. It, it's astounding the, the standards that we are uh, expected to meet. Sure. I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm going to be just like, first of all, Everyone starts off like ninety-nine percent of investors start off and end up thinking to themselves like I like I'm a Warren Buffett actor. I invest like Warren Buffett. I want to buy low and sell high. I want to buy good things cheap. And, I, and and because it's so intuitive, it doesn't mean it's easy to do, and it doesn't even mean that's the like it's like that's the reason you're making your money. Exactly. But it's very intuitive. So I think the problem a lot of quants have is they don't properly explain the intuition, or they can't explain the intuition, and it becomes much much harder as a selling feature. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is. It, this is so anathema to how people think of what their role as an investor is. The, uh, my role as an investor, and we always talk about this, the sharp ratio is return over risk. And, they, and they'll say, my role as an investor is to try and time things. I want to pick the winners. I'm trying to improve the return. And what we're saying is, hold on a second. You can do a much, much, much better job by improving the risk and keeping the returns constant mm. and then using a bit of leverage. And so it turns out it's much easier to come at it from the risk side, but people but, that's not what investing is. Portfolio construction. Like, I always think of portfolio construction as putting the pieces together as risk. And a lot of people are portfolio construction is about returns. And it's like well, TAA is about returns, maybe. But at the end of the day, I really think like well, this is why I really think the portfolio construction is like I want my starting point that I can do my active stuff around. But what is my starting point? And the fact is, risk is more stable. Correlations, in fact, are more stable. And they're easier to predict as a result. And they are, they are something that you can put pressure on about the future. If you want to make predictions about the future, risk and correlations, the risk in particular, correlations are hard, but risk in particular like, deserve weight. 
yep. because a, a, a two-year bond tends to have less risk than a ten-year bond, and that's a pretty straightforward statement. A, uh, you know, the, the, but you, 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 euro-dollar futures tend to have less risk than gold. That is something you can pretty much go to the bank, and it will always be the case. But it's enough to add value in the future. It's very, very hard to predict returns. Most people destroy value trying to predict returns, and I would say at the end of the day, start thinking about risk from the risk factor portfolio construction side. And and then start to think, well, how can I add some alpha? How can I how can I then start to juice the returns up? And it does okay, so let's go there. All right, let's go there because I think we've I mean we've we've yeah. we all kind of agree on the risk parity as as the neutral starting point, and we I think all agree. You know, we 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 call this the impossible market or navigating the impossible market. You say, okay, not impossible, but it's highly challenging. So let's go to that challenge, right? So we've got a well diversified portfolio. We've got we've taken a good crack at managing the risk of all these major economic environments. But this risk parity portfolio, given capital market assumptions, probably is is not going to do it, right? It's not going to hit the re required return target. It's not going to give you 5% real over the next 10 years in the way that it gave you more than 5% real over the last 20 years at the same level of all. So, you know, right. you mentioned earlier, right, we can raise leverage a little bit, right? That helps a little bit. But there's a, you know, when the expected return is, one or two percent on your risk parity portfolio, there's a max sort of Kelly leverage that you're going to want to hit before your you know your expected compound return begins to decay, and so you've got to add other edges to the pile in order to be able to pile on to get your you know to your to your five percent required return target. How do you how do you think about that? So uh, there's there's two bits to that, and I think and and and, and so the first one is. Beta's returns are probably going to be lower today than they were historically, and, and and you just said that as a statement. I think they're only one or two percent, but you've got to defend that statement. I think a little bit, and you're going to say why? Why are they lower today? And and the answer is, um, they're lower because the price of everything is high. And you know, for a given set of cash flows, if you're willing to pay twice as much for those cash flows now as you were five years ago, uh, your expected returns come down as a result. And so when prices are high. For a given set of cash flows, you can think of that discount rate as the IRR, but like 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 the, the lower the discount rate, the lower your expected return. It sounds really obvious, but the problem is right now the discount rate across the board for everything is as low as it's ever been. You cannot escape the fact that expected returns are also as low as they've ever been. And so let's break it down, right? Like right? let's let's actually yeah. put some numbers on it. So what's the the ten year yields? What in the sixty basis point range? And yeah. the yeah. equity risk premium is in the or you know and and like short term rates are in the. I don't know, zero range, right? And the equity risk premium, if you look at the median, the median is in the 150 basis point range. Let's, let's be generous and call it 200 basis points. So, and commodities, notwithstanding some sort of overlay, <laughs> yeah. let's call it zero, right? Yeah. So the expected return real is low. on 60-40 is obscenely low, on risk parity is, is obscenely low. Risk parity is going to give you the same return for probably a lot less volatility. I think you could argue that there may be some kind of rebalancing risk premium in, in risk parity that you don't get from 60-40. But notwithstanding all that, you're just you're, you know you're in the sort of two to three percent range max real, and it's right. probably substantially below that. So the one thing is you got it. So a couple a couple points there, and, and you're right. Everything's low. And we can talk about why they're low because it's, I think that's super important to understand. But just because yields are low in bonds doesn't mean the risk premium in bonds is low. And, and I think we talked about the bond risk premiums and yields. But like that's actually not the right way to think about it. Like the yields are on a bond, but you have to understand. But we're talking about bonds, and we and if you want to compare, like a bond 
is not an asset class. A bond is a thing that you put your money in a 10-year bond and, 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 and you know, one year from now, it's a nine-year bond and five years from now, it's a five-year bond. And the statistical characteristics of that thing are constantly changing until it turns into nothing. If you, you want to compare perpetuity, which is equities, to a perpetuity of fixed income, you have to start thinking about a rolled bond process. And if you really want to get it right, you probably have to talk about a funded rolled bond process. Yep. So if you want to compare a perpetuity of equities to a perpetuity of bonds, you got to look at levered rolled bonds. That is a completely different asset class than a bond. The futures for contract. Two, for, for, for futures contracts or swaps or like, you know, like when you think about a funded levered process. Yep. And so like future, like think about what does a, uh, a futures in bond look like? Well, futures in bond is, is arguably now a perpetuity. And so you think when you want to compare apples to apples, you should probably think, well, what are the characteristics of the futures in bond and the futures in equities? And you go, the big characteristic of levered bonds, there's two of them, is that when the yields come down, the short rate tends to come down even further. And the top performing asset class almost on the planet over the last 30 years has been US, sorry, has been JGBs, Japanese bonds. When their yields fell below 100 basis points, they got better. Why? Because the short rate was, was zero to negative and the carry was still very good. You can, you can have 4% yield and 3% short rates and you're only making 100 basis points in carry. You can still be making 100 basis points in carry at 100 yield. At a, yep. at a, at a, you know. And so it doesn't mean that they will be always. It doesn't mean they're not enormously risky. Like there's lots of caveats to all this always, but there's a massive mistake that people tend people like, the other thing I think the real knock on bonds is that people tend to think of them in terms of their yield. No one knows what the price of a tenure because you can't talk about the price of tenure. It doesn't make any sense, but you can talk about the yield. Mm -hmm. The yield is like saying the PE. And people go, oh the yield's only hundred basis points, so bonds are worse. So bonds are quoted like kind of differently than equity. You know, equities like rise in value and people go, oh they're better. Because they don't look about what's my forward looking return. You know, bonds rise in value. People go, oh, the forward-looking return is lower because the yield's lower. And, and so, like, there's a real, I think, like, mistake in that. The other thing about levered bonds is that they're a shockingly good global diversifier. So if you think about, like, why do we do internet? Like, every global bond play on the planet is, is, is trying to diversify internationally, right? Like everyone's trying to get into Asia and trying to get into EM and trying to get into Latin and go, why? Because we need some diversification in our equities. The diversification on the equity side is okay. There's a little bit. Like, maybe you're, you know, like, it's it's a... 70, 80% correlated, and maybe you get a five or 10% increase in your sharp ratio in your equities, maybe. Global bonds are incredibly good diversifiers because of that short rate, which is driven by the local central banks, and those tend to be relatively uncorrelated with each other. And so you've got this feature where like, the diversification benefit across global bonds is actually significantly better than it is across global equities. And central banks tend to drop the short rate when equities are doing badly, so global levered bonds are a better diversifier against equities. So you gotta you gotta make sure you're defining bonds properly. And Chris, so, how, how does currency work? And continue your thought, but come back to how currency works into that as well, if you well, don't mind. I mean, so so typically when you're using futures, you can just sort of think you're thinking there's a local, and so you don't really have to worry about that. But I would say very much as a Canadian investor, you should be super aware of your currency exposures. Um, and and there's two lines of thought on FX hedging, uh, and uh, one is uh, FX has zero expected return and there's a cost to hedging. So why would I bother? Right. And so you say like, like, mm -hmm. like, like, like I, just, I might as well have a completely unhedged portfolio. I might have a deliberately unhedged portfolio. I might have a policy where I at least like reverse like hedges if they were to show up because I want to be unhedged. And so, and so you look at that and you say, well, like, what have I done? You say, well, I, uh, you know, imagine a pension plan in Canada that goes out and buys private assets in, in Brazil or Chile or, you know, in, in, in anywhere. Yeah. And you end up with a whole bunch of short Canada long somewhere else from an FX perspective. Mm -hmm. And if you don't hedge it, uh, you can end up with a very, very big short Canada long exposure. And and so so from a from a 
a, a sharp ratio investor who only cares about return, you go, I, I, why should I bother? Why should I bother hedging? For, from a, a sharp ratio investor who cares about risk, you go, oh my God, I got this giant source of volatility with zero expected return. Yeah, the tail's wagging the dog. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I literally, I've got this thing that just, it's just noise with zero. That is sharp ratio destructive. That is like, that is the worst use of an active risk budget you can imagine. I want to take, I want to, I want to take, I, I'm given a certain amount of risk to spend. I want to get the most amount of return for the risk I'm given. That's what I am as an investor. Why would I put it in something with zero expected return? For sure, you should hedge your currencies, but you have to be really careful. And this is this is where this is like the CIO's challenge part two is you go I, I, even if I knew how to build the maximum sharp ratio portfolio I knew exactly what to do I'm in a world of constrained resources and my major constrained resource is my balance sheet it's my leverage and you go like and you look at it and say where am I where am I where am I spending my cash and if you if you go and you hedge away your FX exposure you have to set money aside to defend that because there's a world where the stocks are falling and the FX is moving against you and you got to come up with money and if you don't you can get really caught in the liquidity squeeze. And, and a couple of pension plans, you know, doing, I think, the right thing, hedging currency, but probably overhedging and not properly defending their, 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 their cash on it, got themselves in a bit of trouble in 2008. So do you currency hedge? Absolutely. But you have to think of that money as it's doing something. It's, it's, it's money I'm spending to improve my sharp ratio, like, like, like hiring an active team. And in fact, I think when we looked at it, we figured that if we currency hedge ourselves completely at teachers, the increase in sharp ratio was equivalent to the entire active management of teachers. So it's just to say, it's, it's wow. a, that yeah. is a, a yeah. statement because you've taken away the source of risk and if you can replace yeah. that risk with better return. I like that. So what, about a, what about currencies as, a, as an actual uh, asset class themselves? Uh, did they, so did they play into this structure? Clearly, there's when we said that commodities don't necessarily have a long side risk premium, uh, obviously, FX by definition does not have a long side risk premium because there's not even a long side. Like, what are you talking about? Is it long Canada or long US? But are there risk premiums within commodities just like there are risk premiums uh, within FX just like there are risk premiums within commodities? Absolutely. Because all you need for a risk premium is a willing payer who's willing to pay money to someone else because it improves their position. They, they're paying that money because they're getting something beneficial out of it. You got a payer, you got a payee. That's exactly what the equity risk premium is. It's what the fixed income risk premium is. And those exist all over the place. And for sure, FX is a, is, 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 is a still a, a, a great place to invest. Um, I, but I would say you should not ever, well, you should be very careful about the, uh, about the extra risk you take on. Um, that, that, that wasn't, it's not, it's, it's, it kind of came as like, as, a, as, as the baggage associated with another investment, but, but it's got a cost. And to think that the cost is only an expected return side is not to realize that the risk is a cost. It's, it's, it's a, and, and people go, well, risk isn't really a cost. Well, it absolutely is. You could have taken that risk budget and put it into equities or put it into bonds or put it into this diversified portfolio. Um, absolutely risk is a cost because you've got, you are risk constrained. Someone somewhere said you're only allowed to take X amount of risk and your job is to make the most return you can for that risk. Now, do you have to hedge all your effects? No, because when you have this giant source of risk and it's, and it's literally an overarching source of risk, um, you don't have to drive to zero for it to disappear into your portfolio. You just have to take it from a from a loud roar down to a dull roar. But once it's a dull roar, like the, the math of diversification starts to take over and it starts to become a, a smaller and smaller contributor to your total portfolio. So there's just a there's a tipping point where you want to get it below that level, uh, and then and then just be careful if you're gonna if you're going to FX hedge, make sure that you've set that money aside. Now there's one final debate in all of this, which is, but what if you really really believe the correlation between Canadian dollars and equities is negative? And then you say, if I'm long US and short cat, is that not a great trade in 2008? Is like, do I not think the Canadian dollar is going to get smoked if and every time the, the, the stock market falls? The answer is, it might. 
But you've got to be very, very careful making investment bets around correlation. Correlation is a super noisy, super unstable, very hard to predict, not very dependable. It kind of didn't in 2020. It took a so long will, time for it to start working. Yeah, and, and it won't necessarily in an inflation crisis. It won't, you know, so I, I would say that there is a, uh, you know, the reason why every big U.S. hedge fund on the planet doesn't hedge their equity risk with short cat is because that would be insane. Like it, it would be, it would be a crazy additional <laughs> source of risk. Uh, but I think the same, like, it's know, so great. Like, it's so great that you drive across the border, like yeah. literally just, just, just fly your plane 30 miles across land in Niagara Falls, Fort Erie, and have the same discussion about how you should be currency hedging. And it's a totally different ball game. Like it's just not even same fishbowl. Anyway. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> it should be. It should be yeah, part of your discussion. That's, that's the your point, story. right? It, it should be yeah. just like you said. You would no other no other asset manager on the planet would do that, except for a Canadian asset manager would think about that. that okay, that's so let's not hijacking. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Is, is the yeah, I digress. The one that probably can slightly argue for a slight leaving a bit behind because there probably is a slight negative correlation there. And mm-hmm. but I, I just like be careful. Um, you know, building a portfolio around an in-sample look back that says, hey, guess what? These things were negatively correlated over this period because, yeah, that is a super, super dangerous thing to do. You should probably be careful about ever building a portfolio around assumed negative correlations. Right. So, so it's the a, most appropriate thing is to think about it as a different source of risk that you have to manage and doing 100% of it is probably not a good yeah. idea. I mean, like in our portfolios, we want, we want like, what we are investing is risk and we're trying to make as much return as possible for the risk we're investing in an in, in, in asset class that, that or an exposure that has zero expected return and lots of risk is very very costly. It's 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 quite literally like, you know anyway. And and since it's very cheap to hedge, typically, um, yeah, you know I think that's an easy thing to do. It doesn't mean you completely hedge it. Doesn't mean you hedge everything, but just be aware that 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 that, that, that there are tricks in there. But it does get to the CIO's challenge of going, where do I spend my bullets? Because if you so said, where do we spend okay. the bullets? Well, <laughs> one second at the portfolio construction level. Let's just start for a second to go. If I wanted to build this, to this diversified portfolio, this currency shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many bullets do I have? Fascinating. Uh, yeah, that, not that many. So, so, so the question is, like, like, first of all, let's see. What's your? Not right now, maybe, but in the on average, in the long term, the biggest source of risk outside of equity risk for most pension plans is actually their liability stream. You say like we have this giant short bond position, with a discount rate, and we say you know if the discount rates come down. That's a real source of risk because your contribution rates go up. You may have to change your benefits. You can you can certainly fail just as easily from a discount rate move as you can from an equity fall. And, and so you should certainly be aware of that as a giant source of risk. So the first thing where you may want to spend that bullet, you go, once you, oh, man, i got the source of risk. That's got zero expected return. Maybe I should hedge it. And you go, that's it. That's LDI. So liability driven investing is, is the sort of the modern approach. Going, we want to dampen that a bit. If you want to fully immunize your liabilities, you're going to need leverage unless you're unless you're fully funded. And then you can use the rest to try and generate a little bit of excess of money. But assuming you're not fully funded, in other words, you're not, you're not quite literally using your risk-free rate as your actual discount rate, and you have a, which no one is, you're not fully funded, so you can't fully immunize without leverage. And so that's your first thing. I've only got so much balance sheet. I can only do so much leverage. And I can only do so much LDI. And you go, where else? What else is demanding on my balance sheet? Well, yep. your capital markets team, your FX hedging, as we said, all your derivatives programs. And you go, and, and, and competing for that cash are your privates. Because you take that money out and you do FX hedging, but you don't set the money aside and you go spend it on something illiquid, but you can't have both of those. And so this is the constrained resource that makes life really difficult. Because even if we all agree, which you probably should, that we're trying to get towards this maximum sharp ratio portfolio, there's only so close you can get to it given all your constraints. And that is the 
part of the CIO's challenge. So you go like, okay, I don't think beta is going to pay that well. It's not going to pay as well as it did in the last 15 years. It's impossible for it to pay as well as in the last 15 years because the entire driver of the return wasn't cash flow surprise to the upside. Very little cash flow surprising to the upside. Your real estate didn't go, oh my God, I, I made way more real estate than I expected because I because I because my cash flow is surprised. Your, your, your infrastructure didn't didn't surprise on the cash flow side. It's just that someone was willing to pay more for the same cash flows five years later. That is a discount rate falling. You got paid on your privates from the bond side of them, from the discount rate side. And so you look at them, man, we don't like bonds here. And, and people don't like bonds here for you know for a variety of reasons, but you can't really love a lot of the privates as well for the same reason. Unless you, th because the price is very, very high relative to the cash flows you're getting right now, historically high, and so that's a challenge as well. And so this is the classic: what got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there because it's not going to be as easy as, as, and I, I don't, I hate this term like grade a fool theory, but it's not going to be as easy as just finding someone willing to pay more than you paid five years from now and going, who's better than me? Because at the end of the day, that's not going to continue forever. And the dis dis falling discount rate, which does raise prices, because at least with the present value, future cash flows goes up if you if you take the discount rate down and so the central base came in and went discount rates are all down prices are up the problem with that is your forward looking return all you've done is taken your future returns and paid them to yourself today mm -hmm. so so you literally your prices are higher we feel that richer now but going forward our expected return is proportionally lower we are no better off what about the risk what about the risk budget the risk the balance right so <laughs> how, 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 would, how do our institutions yeah. pricing risk on privates because i think that's uh, it's so a major problem that's a, there. That's a very uh, tricky thing to do. Um, so you say, like, how do institutions price risk? And 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 so, you know, like obviously it's it's in the news right now with uh, with AIMCO. and and like to a certain extent, I'm 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 unsympathetic, and to a certain extent, I'm very sympathetic because their risk system almost certainly did not look back 35 years, and and and, and so they would have shown zero chance of this happening according to their risk system. I don't think anyone's institutional risk system really looked back that far. Now, that doesn't mean that when the dealer came to you, because like, you know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, in the business said like the dealers would come to him every six months with this trade. You know, there's this cap done cap variance swap. And they said, let's got a sharp ratio of 15. And and it did have a sharp ratio of 15. And, 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 and kudos to him because sometimes it's the trades you don't do, not the trades you do. But he went, yeah, it's got a sharp ratio of 15 over the last 30 years, actually. But it's got a sharp ratio of minus two over the last 31 years. And, and that's a crazy <laughs> trade. Now, the thing is, like, you know, so, so kudos for him not doing it because it's super, super tempting to put the trade on that only once every 30 years blows you up because, because you know, probably not going to happen in your lifetime. And, and you, can, you can look like a genius in between. So that's a problem. It's a risk system problem. It doesn't mean that it was a terrible trade to do if you size it right. Like, it may, you know, it may still be a positive expected return, but clearly it has to be sized right. Um, but it doesn't mean, like, we have got risks. It doesn't mean we have the private risk right either on average, because I don't think anyone's got the 35-year private model either. And if you've only got like a 10 or 15-year look back on privates, they also look very, very low risk. And so you see a lot of a lot of private models. Like, okay, so we know for sure they're smooth because because they're because they're they're they're, they're basically the values are set by accountants and, yep. and they're lagged. You know, if you, if you could just take the S and P 500 and just lag it six months, that would that would look like a brand new asset class at the annual level. Like it, it quite literally, it would be uncorrelated. It'd be zero correlation. So like, I, like technically, that's amazing. It's like I would call it two assets instead of one. My sharp ratio goes up by like forty percent if all I did was just lag something by six months. But that's yep. at the one year level. At the three year level, of course, the fact that their six months lag starts to show up. At the five year level, they're one hundred percent correlated again. It's artificial. So lagging looks good at the one year level. It looks good at the two year level. It's a bit artificial over that. 
The smoothing is artificial as well because it's because while the volatility is not shown, of course, there's trending with serial correlation, and that's almost the definition of it. So it still has the same or should have the same peak to troughs. Now it may also have a grind up slam down dynamic where it only shows its risk every 10 years. And you go, this becomes a really hard thing to risk. And it becomes a trap, right? Because what you see is really good diversifier, really low risk, never blown up. And, and, and so you can imagine why someone might think, well, maybe infrastructure is like as risky as a Canadian bond. You go, can't be, because it has all the discount rate risk, but it also at the end of the day, the reason, the reason these assets, the reason real estate or infrastructure or the privates are paying more than the risk-free rate is because they have equity risk. They have, they have business risk in them. And so this is what you will see, I think, in a COVID strike is you'll start to see the business risk in a bunch of these assets because there are business risks. That's what you're getting paid for. And so it's a bond and it's paid like a bond. And so and it's somewhere along the way, we never saw the cash flow hit. And so we went, oh, there's no risk in the cash flows. Well, of course there's risk in the cash flows. And, and, and there's, there's the danger of leveraging something up too much. If you take an, you know, an asset class and, and if you take an asset Lever it up eight or nine times. It only takes a small decrease in cash flows before you get yourself into some trouble. So I'm I'm sympathetic to Inco because I don't think their risk system would have caught it. Um, I don't think many pension plans risk systems would have caught it. I think pension plan risk systems have also misdiagnosed risk in a lot of assets. Maybe maybe possibly underrepresented risk in some asset classes. But the problem with the and, and so this is sort of the I don't know if this is a good analogy or not. But the, you know uh, Nassim Tlaib has this definition of fragility, and it's. Uh, you know, and he's got a really good example. I really like this. He goes like, you know, like 50 years or 100 years ago. And I'm going to totally butcher the story, but just go with the go with the gist of it. But 50 or 100 years ago, uh, you know, the, the power grids were all localized, and and so you had your local power generator, and and there were brownouts all the time because these things would constantly go down, and they, every single time one had a problem, you'd have a local brownout, and it kind of sucked. And so, and and you know, fast forward 50 years, and you've got this incredible uh, process of overflows and dependencies, and you've got this extremely optimized process. But it's incredibly fragile now, and so what happens if one squirrel in a, in a, in a transistor, like or whatever, like uh, out in, in the East Coast, it takes down the entire East Coast grid, and so you go from like a large number of relatively unimportant brownouts to a catastrophic blackout, and and I kind of think that's that's how I think about risk because if you think about like what the public markets show you, is they constantly show you their risk. There is no hiding the risk of a public market. There's no hiding from March in 2020. There's no hiding from 2008. The risk is there and it's in your face and so you see it and you know it. Well, the privates hide their risk. The risk is there and it will show up and it shows up over, unfortunately 2008 didn't show up because it was so fast that by the time they had to start marking down 2009, it was already coming back. A 2000 and 2003 will show it, a 1965 to 1975 will show it. And so at the end of the day, I think we've got like, we potentially have this fragile system because we haven't seen the risk and we think that it's not there and, and because it's, 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 it's been hidden away to a certain extent and we've taken short-term volatility, you know, local brownouts, and we've turned it into bigger, probably more catastrophic type explosions, much much less frequently. So, so, so that's, we, really, like, that's the challenge with private. So we've covered all the. So we covered the equities, the bonds, the private equity. Um, <laughs> you know, we're we're now in zero to two percent land territory going forward. You were about yeah. to say, how can we improve this as quants? Uh, all right. Well, this is like. A, um, I, I I can't get into this too much, but I would say I, I, I want to say first of all set up the how we could have solved it 15 years ago, right? And so this is and this is a I, I look completely made this up. So and I can walk through a bit by bit, but just to say, to say when you look at what the world looked like in 2006, and you said like how did most most institutions invest? You said we had some stocks, we had some bonds, and that confidence. I've always like I created this chart and I kind of went. Confidence to me is not how high the sharp ratios, but just that it's positive. 
I think that these things pay money over time. I don't know how much, like I said, like the who knows what equities owe you for real over 100 years, but I think it's positive. And I think credit, a mixture of stocks and bonds with some vol selling and some illiquidity is probably positive too. And so, and so pension plans played in that stock bond credit. That alpha, I think, is, is where a lot of pension plans played as well. That's stock picking alpha, like trying to add value above and beyond the portfolio. I, I tend to think of that as being a zero-sum game. So like, how confident am I it's going to be positive? Well, you, you think that you're skilled. You think that you're above average skilled. You think that maybe you should be able to produce positive, but then so does everyone. Let's just call it zero for a second. doesn't mean you can't add value there, but it's harder to think that it owes you money. And then I would say there's all those liquid alts. Right? And I think these were mostly overlooked by pension plans in 2006 uh, and 2005. I mean, like I, like I said in the podcast, the, as you started trying to say, like, how can we build a diversified portfolio of alternative risk premiums and, and what did that look like? You know, part of the pushback is always, look, if it was this good and this easy, why wouldn't everyone do it? And, and so most people didn't, but there was, a, there was a ton of other tools in your toolkit that you could have added. And I would say the key to investing, the key to investing for sure, for sure, for sure, is to avoid the crowds. If you can anticipate and get in front of the crowds, that could work for a while. But a crowded trade, by definition, just by definition, if more people have bought it than should, let's call that crowded, um, its price gets bid up and its expected returns come down as a result. So, crowded so would you trades, agree with, I've been, I've been playing with this framework for the last couple of years, which is basically that to the extent that a strategy or an asset class or a methodology becomes with well within the Overton window, it is accepted by academia. It's accepted by institutional allocators. There's such a good story for why it should work. Literally, the expected return is inversely proportional to those dynamics, right? Like to the extent that everybody accepts that this is something valid, that is sustainable, that is persistent, that has a attractive risk premium, the, the, the fact that enough people accept it to be true, it validates it. Or if, if not invalidated, yeah, maybe, maybe not totally diminishes the yeah. the sharp ratio to the point where it's no longer the, serves the function that you that you want. And the and the, and the sort of the analogy I always sort of mention is like the alchemist dilemma, right? You're an alchemist, you you spend your entire life trying to figure out how to turn straw into gold because if you do, man, will you ever be rich? Without realizing that if you figured out how to turn straw into gold, you wouldn't be rich. You would you would you would just make gold useless and worthless. Yeah, yeah. And so at the end of the day, you go like like these things uh, are, are only good. If, if not everyone can do them, and 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 it doesn't mean that doesn't mean they're not they shouldn't be still in your portfolio. I still think they're positive return and they should absolutely still be in your portfolio. They won't be as good as they were because they're crowded. But so is infrastructure, so is real estate, so is private equity. Everything's crowded. The returns going forward are going to be a lot harder than they were over the last ten years. So that's the thing. And so I would just say that this was sort of the point of this chart was to go fast forward to 2018. And of course, I totally made this up again. But I would say like those things that used to be considered hedge fund alpha and really sophisticated. And really not what people thought about doing in-house or exposing themselves to in-house. More and more pension plans, bit by bit, started to include them in-house. And, and, and as a result, their returns came down. Like, 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 and, and so you got two issues. The returns get compressed as more people do it. The, the correlations come up as more people do it. The risk goes up as more people do it. And you go, net, net, it's a, it's a worse trade. And, so, and you also have this other massive problem in all of this when things get crowded. It's not just the pension plans, but it's the banks, it's the hedge funds, like a lot of people pursuing the same strategies. And you go, what's, what, what is the, the natural, like, why would you think there's any correlation between the cash flows produced by commodity backwardation contango and FX carry? And you go, there's no reason they should be correlated. They, they are 100% different things. But if the same multi-strat is doing both of them and is forced to deliver at the same time, they will both lose money at the same time. 
the more people are doing the same thing, the more giant multi-stress trade, all these strategies, the more they just become correlated by the flows in and out of them. And, and so not only the returns get driven down and the individual risks come up, but the correlations have, a, have this, now this, this, this capacity to spike. And if you see a grand deleveraging or liquidity event, uh, the diversification benefit you're used to seeing sort of disappears. And that is the major challenge in the space right now. And I, and I think it goes back to, Adam, your question, like why do people really, what, what's their, one of their fears about systematic? And they go, well, part of it is what happens if the future is different than the past? And, 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 and there's always that risk there. And, and I think there's a natural sense to go, Ugh, maybe, maybe the, the things that worked well won't necessarily, and there's a shift there. Um, but it's also the problem, like the beauty of these things and, 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 and the, you know, the neat sort of part that where people can do them is because if you build a CTA and I build a CTA, our CTAs are going to be like 80 or 90% correlated. No, maybe not. Maybe that's maybe like a you know, basic trend plot might be, and, then, and it's up to you to try and improve it. But, but the fact is, a lot of people have a general sense of how these things work, and they're all kind of doing the same thing at the same time. So, that, and that you don't have that risk with a discretionary guy as much. They all could, they could be like group thinking, they all could be doing the same thing. But this is like, this has that extra risk of, man, they could all lose at the same time. All your strategies lose at the same time. And, and, and also, like when people get too big, it becomes harder for them to make money. And when people get too successful, other people start to copy them. And, and that is more of a risk in systematic than, than in discretionary. It, it, feels like the, it feels like the risk avoiding behaviors of a systematic investor, we all share that in common. We, we identify the same risks and we try to avoid them in the same way. Versus a discretionary manager is more opportunity seeking, which uh, generally or may, may not always involve the same bets. Yeah. And certain, certainly it's a hook into individuals. People like to talk more about opportunity seeking than they do risk avoiding. But uh, yeah, it's well, welcome, Jason. I, I saw you here the whole time. <laughs> Sorry, I've, been, I've been sitting here drinking. I came late. Sorry to interrupt. It's happy hour. You had stuff to do. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I, I, I think so. It doesn't mean that they can successfully do it, but it's an intuitive right. story. Totally. And, and, yeah. and, and I would say, uh, you know, it, it just comes down to, but the systematic guys have to be constantly doing and trying to do is that they're trying to get off to the right, out of the crowds, yes. into the yeah. non-crowded space. And I think that's the, I think like that is honestly, and, and the problem with this is, is that complexity and sophistication curve of the world is constantly moving to the right, as it should. That's a great thing, but you have to stay off to the right of it. So you can't be doing what you're doing back in 2006 in 2018, uh, or you can, but you don't expect the same returns. No, I would still yep. say, I don't expect the same returns from anything in 2018 that they would have given you in 2006. You know, infrastructure in 2006, small number of, of, of really big sophisticated players pursuing a deal and, and in 2018, 50 sophisticated big players pursuing the same deals. It's very hard to imagine that, that you can get the same deal now that you could have gotten them. I mean, it just like, this is it. It gets harder and harder and harder. And so, and so really the onus and the, and, and, and the, and the, and the, uh, the challenge for the alpha investor is that. Is, is how do we how do we how do we get away from the crowd? How do we avoid the crowd? How do we do stuff in front of the crowd? And that's ultimately a, a you know to a certain extent what I'm working on, and I think what everyone should be working on as well. So it's I mean we we completely agree, but I just think it's this incredibly rich psychological challenge because you've got this situation where you need to be so far ahead of the curve in order to be able to capitalize on innovations and inefficiencies that the rest of the market hasn't recognized yet. But until it goes into the Overton window, until it has an explanation that 
people can get behind and understand until a sufficient number of your peer group embrace the same thinking, then you don't get any assets in it, right? Like, so it's, 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 it's it's this incredible paradox, right? Like the innovation happens out here where it's uncomfortable, where your peer group don't understand it. They're not allocating to it. It's strange. It probably is sophisticated, but it's also, it's complicated. It's complex. It's using new technology, new ways of thinking about it, right? You know, it's still maybe it's machine bad. learning is a is a bad example, but it's an example of this where the tool set's different. Most people aren't trained in it. And so it's out of the Overton window. People don't know how to evaluate it. And so it's uncomfortable. But that's where the that's where the alpha is. And or, no one's willing to go there. And maybe because what, no what, one's willing to go there. Which, is the, like, which girl is going to be perceived as the most beautiful girl? Like it is. This is the Keynesian beauty contest, 100%. You have an Overton window. You have to guess where that window is going to go, which is what's the prettiest girl in the room. Not by you, but by everybody around you. So to, I think what you're, trying to, what you're saying, right, is that you've got, you've got a group. Of, it's not enough to have a, a group of strategies or strategies that are effective. They also have to be strategies oh, that yeah. you could describe using language that a sufficient number of investors can connect with and say, oh, yeah, I get that. Or like, there's a papers on that from, from credible sources that I respect. And, you know, well, so it's so, like, yeah, that's you've been, you've right? been at this for six months now, right? Like, and, and, and you're looking at other factors that have an explanation in your, or that you've come up with as that have explanations. But the moment that you explain, I think you said there's like 20 different factors that you've identified beyond what's well-documented and academic. Um, I always find it interesting. I, I, I'm curious to hear how it's been for you as you're as you're pitching this, when you can't actually describe it, because then your your um, your IP will go away. Well, so so first of all, a surprising number of investors ask you to just describe it, and so then you've got to be very very careful because if your entire thesis is I'm doing stuff other people aren't, uh, it's pretty hard to go and let me tell everyone how what I'm doing. So there's always that 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 um uh, I, I don't I mean like this is a terrible analogy. I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but I'm not gonna say it. Forget it. Pull it out. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's watching. Anyway, I would say uh, you have to be able to describe the intuition behind the thought process, and you have to be able to, to demonstrate that it's not black box, that it's not quant, that it's not data mine, but that there's a, that there's something you're approaching, and you're approaching it in the way that you've always been approaching it. And and this is like it is without a doubt, it's very very hard for most investors to be proper contrarian. And like I said, you want to buy when people are selling, you want to sell when they're buying, you want to avoid the overcrowded stuff and you want to find the undercrowded stuff and you want to get there early. And getting everyone, everyone thinks they're Warren Buffett. Everyone thinks they're that person, but no one actually- No, but I would argue that in fact, it, most of the, a, most quants think they're AQR, right? Like, because AQR created a model, which is uh, we're, we're quant, but we're going to fully disclose everything that we're doing so that you can understand it we're going to create an economic intuition. We're going to write white papers on it. And by you getting an intuition, understanding the narrative, and then showing showing what is essentially back test results and support, that is how we're going to get assets in the door because that combination of things, of people getting comfort with the narrative and then seeing the back test is what allows big money to commit. And, and but without like- that, it's fascinating because when you look at our, our pitch books, when we talk about risk parity, we have 45 slides to, because we can talk about every aspect of it, right? Then you get into kind of like the risk parity plus factors. We're looking at 30, 35 slides. 
And then now we're doing, you know, we've got the machine learning thing and I like I, it's five slides because there's not much more we want or can to say. Disclose. Yeah. Exactly. And so you have, you know, you so, have I mean, a smaller yeah, I, I, set of individuals that, that, that are willing yeah. to, to go there. I totally, totally agree. Selling it is not easy. It's not people's natural predilection on, on how they think about investing. And, and a lot of investors hate it. Like, you're not, you're not just like, hey, you're not going up against a, like someone has no real view. A lot of people, this is not what investing is. Investing is understanding the name and doing the research. And, and so, and so like, I think that there is a, that's a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, I think you have to, I think like AQR has done, obviously done an amazing job of selling it. So, so like, I think they've done a very good job of telling the story and, and of, of showing the back tests and, you know, so, so, you know, it's, you have to be careful. I mean, like anyone can show up with a back test. And so it's really like, I am very sympathetic to the investor because it's Me really too. hard for an investor. Uh, because most investors in the space have, haven't actually invested in the space. And so they can't tell a good story from a bad story. And that's the problem. And different. Different is like nine out of 10 different things will lose money. Like different, it has to be different, but it has to be believable. And it has to, it has to have, uh, uh, you know, some hook in behind it where, where, the, where like, or, I mean, you've got to be dependable, I guess is the piece of it. And, yeah. and so, and ultimately a lot of that comes down to it's, it's, uh, it's, People typically want to see you up and running with a track record, and and and, and of course they should, and absolutely that makes absolutely tons of sense. Um, people, uh, they want to hear you explain it in a way that makes sense to them, and you have to get to that too. And and you're right, this is a significant challenge because no one has to tell you I buy low and sell high. I look for good value. Like I, even I buy shopping malls. It's like it, it sounds obvious that you might it might it might take a hundred pages. To even start to describe all the risks that you might potentially expose yourself to when you buy an airport, like those are not easy and simple things. But you don't have to explain why, you yeah, know. You don't, exactly. and, and so there's less defense, and 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 you know, for better or for worse, it's the space we're in. Uh, I think a lot of the time it's like, and, and and the other part is obviously we have to keep moving always. And so and so I think like the other part of the why, and this is the part I focus on a little bit. You can't guarantee returns. Like, you know, if you've got these 20 different things and, okay, each one of them back tests as, as well as a CTA, they go, hey, they, 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 this would be great if they all did that. Okay, don't know. Don't know how they're going to do out of sample. Don't know. You know, you can just say, like, you know, there's a little bit of, I've done this for a long time and there's a robustness behind the process and the thought process, but nothing is guaranteed on the return side. But what I can spend a bit more time focusing on is the correlation side, because the correlation of risk is where I think I actually can, bit by bit produce something that, that that I think I can defend. And so, you know, if I say like, I can't tell you I've got 20 things that all make money. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee that at any given point in time, two or three of them, if they were independent processes, would be losing money. Cause that's just, that's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But I can I can say that they will be relatively independent to each other and to other things. And you go, that's what, an, like, if I said like, what would I want as an investor? It's like, I've got this stuff here. I've got the stocks, I got the bonds, I got the liquid alts. I can get those almost, I can get those relatively cheap now. I've got the global macro. I've got all this stuff. I'm looking for this other stuff, but I don't want it to be correlated to the stuff I already have because that becomes a massive portfolio construction headache. What I need is different and uncorrelated. And that I think is, and that to me anyway, is the pitch I would have wanted to hear. Does I, I don't typically pitch to myself, but but it's a, you know, but, but and, and so, and, and there's obviously different targets, different audiences and, 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 and uh, different levels of sophistication, but I'm very sympathetic to the investor who's, who's, who hears the same story nine times because everyone's story sounds the same. If salespeople are very good and you hear a good story, it will get repeated over time. And so, that's also, you know, one of the challenges I think is, um, like you said, they're they're thrown back to us all the time. They look fantastic, 
But the, there's also the added level of the a lot of these people throwing back tests to the investors believe strongly that what they've done is real, right? That there's there's a lot of low sophistication uh, in order to be able to go on. What was that uh, website that uh, that people throw at us all the time? ETF, an ETF backtesting website. ETF that, replay. ETF replay, right? That anybody can have, go to this tool, backtest anything they want. Advisors, asset managers, ETF providers, they create an index out of these backtests. And they believe it. They they believe it. And, and that belief that they have while they're pitching it, that that uh, passion gets to the other side. They believe it. They go live. They lose money. And right. so it's tough to differentiate a good back yeah. test and a, a solid story from a bad back test because they're not bad people. Those that put those back tests in front of them, they're just they're just novice quants that haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and and, and it, like model building and systematic model building is a skill set. And this yeah. is where like you know I, you know. You think about like, well, how big does your team have to be? You know, because you can imagine a team of 70, like a lot of, you know, or, or geez, three or 400. And you go, or you can have a team of three or four. And and I always prefer a smaller team because I think the skill set is in the building of the models. I don't think you need to have a, I build models in commodities or I build models in FX or I'm a subject matter expert in this one little small area because I think like the danger of that is you end up data mining that one little piece of material where what you're really trying to find is common ideas that work across the board. You know, if you have a model that, you have to be very careful. You see this all the time where you have a model that that you know, it works in FX and doesn't work in commodities. And if you're just an FX person, you'd be like, done. But you're someone else going, oh, it only works in half the things I tested. No. And 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 so like there's like I think there's a real value to 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 say my expertise is in model building, not in the asset class. And and if you want to show something and you're trying to capture some sort of process, you have to be able to demonstrate that you can capture broadly across the board. There's like there's a lot to the skill set of model building and risk control and portfolio construction and putting it together. And that's why people want to see a history, uh, an out-of-sample process. You've, worked, you've gone to work somewhere and you've done it for a long time. Uh, something that says, I, I'm not just, I haven't just picked up a machine like, and I haven't just started data mining. And, and, so, and so that's, but the problem is it's hard for an investor to tell the difference without those, mm-hmm. without those sort of those, that backup. And so like, it, it's, it's, it's hard and getting harder to get started. Yeah, because yeah, the only people that can evaluate whether you have merit are the people that can already do it themselves, right? Like, it's, or the people yeah. that can that can start teasing out what you're doing and saying, "Oh, I got it, I'm good," right? They're the other quants. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like when yeah. walking into teachers. Could you imagine walking into teachers with your quant model? Twenty people in the room. What are they going to do? Invest in you? <laughs> Mulchers. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, but. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I was like, I mean, obviously, so obviously teachers, external manager group, the vast majority of them don't invest, uh, don't invest themselves and they just invest in managers. We were a very unique team and and we would start every conversation with, just so you know, I run a pro shop internally and um, like start with that. And I'm, I want here to talk about risk, portfolio construction, thought process, you know, because I want to, that's the, I, I've got your returns. I've already correlated them against my returns. I, I see you're doing something different. I want to, I now want to think about how you think about model building, but that's a, like, it's, that's, I, I think it's an atypical approach and I think it's a hard approach. And, and so, um, you know, it's, I, like I said, it's, it's hard for investors to invest and, and they get burned. So but Chris, you, you were uniquely qualified to be able to do that because you built your own internal models, right? For yes. those who don't run their internal prop desk, they don't know what to ask. They don't know what to look for. Like it's a, it's a catch twenty two. And I agree. I mean, we talk about this all the time. 
We're very sympathetic get, to the end investor. And, and, it's and very it, hard. It, it, it's, it's, you know, you won't stick your finger in that socket over and over again, but you seem to be more comfortable with like, okay, that discussion guy was no good, but getting the next discussion guy and get the next one. Or, you know, or you go like, uh, you know, there's like certain, I'm not, I'm not picking on credit necessarily, but a lot of, you know, credit as an asset class is great because it's a mixture of stocks, bonds, and vol selling. It's a lot of betas. Like there's not a lot of alpha in credit in itself. There is relative value credit you can do. But typically, like if you think of it as an asset class, just as it blows up, everyone loves it the most. It's like, well, like, okay, we just got smoked in this thing, mm-hmm. but look how good the spreads are now. And and so, and so it's a, uh, you know, it's one of those things where even the, S- the S&P 500, people go, oh, it just got killed, but I love it more now. Uh, there will People be a buy bank stocks in March, uh, right? In Canada, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so I think on the systematic side, uh, some of these models got too crowded. Some of them were got too common. Too many people were doing them, and I think there might be a rebalancing where bit by bit some of the money comes out, and I think they will start to work again. They may, they probably will never be as good as they were when not many people are doing it. But I think at the end of the day, um, there's room for new stuff too. There's always new stuff, and 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 so. And, and, how, how big is that new stuff? Like, it seems like a lot of investors are, are using it as a shortcut capacity. They want to find these these strategies that have low capacity because they believe that's where the, the magic must be, which can make sense because as, as the uh, intelligence spreads and the weaponry is shared amongst all of the quants out there, we all have lots of weapons and lots of brains. Um, so the only place to go may be these, these, uh, the small uh, capacity strategies. So my, my, my answer to that is a, is a little bit of yes, a little bit of no. you got to be careful. So the question is, what's small capacity? You can run anything at any size, like even, unless you literally like eat up the entire market. But like what you're really saying when you're saying small capacity is your transaction cost at some point over, or your market impact overcomes your alpha process. And so there's two answers to that. And the first one is, well, where do you have market impact or high transaction costs? And a lot of that small capacity is either very liquid or EM uh, or on the less, you know, like, like so you got some guys who are just trend following, uh, you know, pretty liquid and pretty small stuff. The challenge with that is that your, tra- like your cost of trading is significantly higher. And, and so you've just got to make sure, so, so the, the pressure then moves away from a signal or it moves, it moves in addition to a signal to really top-notch execution. And, and like this, by the way, execution, I can go on for hours, but, but I just to give like, like quick, 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 execution is extraordinarily important for everyone. You know, and, and the discretionary guys don't, they just don't, they typically don't intuit it and, and, and in fact, we had a, this is, I got to take a one minute story here. We had a hedge fund manager um, who had all these, like, I'd say like a thousand different alpha managers, each making stock picks. And these stock picks were, you know, like six months to one year hold. Like, you know, really, you know, like, like we're not, they're not high turnover. They're, they're not really like massively diversified portfolios. It's like five to 10 names. And you're just, you're just doing a very concentrated process. And they asked them, like, so what, you know, first of all, none of them really thought transaction costs matter that much for them. And the answer is, well, well why? And they said, so what do you think you make per trade? And the answer was between all 1,000, the lowest was 400 basis points, 4%, and the highest was, I think, uh, 1,000 basis points, around 10%. The expectation is if you're, you're making between 4 and 10% per trade on expectation, you're not buying Microsoft with the expectation of making two basis points. Then what does it matter if I trade for 15 basis points or 25 basis points in cash equity? It doesn't because I'm making 10,000, you know, I'm making so much. And the answer is when they went through this entire set, and by the way, for this number to even be positive, it means that you've got alpha at the very, very least. But across these, like across all of them, the answer was 51 basis points. And because there's this massive, massive intuitive flaw in what they're doing, because they're going, how much do I expect to make if I get it right? Without realizing their hit rate is like 51 or 52%. Of course, they can have the trades wrong. 
It doesn't mean that you ride it all the way down, but if you don't, if you stop it out early, it means that you actually have more losers than winners. But like long story short, if you have like a 52% hit rate and you make 400 on the upside, but you lose 400 on the downside, you're at 50, you know, you're not even at 50 basis points in that story. And so, and then is it 15 or 25? It's like, oh my God, that's a quarter or half of my alpha. And so, and so does it matter? It absolutely matters. And it matters for long-term hold discretionary guys. And does it matter for systematic guys? It matters way more. And so, which is why, and we've talked about this in the past, like, you know, you have to demonstrate strong signals and strong processes and independence and portfolio construction risk. And you also have to demonstrate uh, or you have to focus and pay attention on execution. And I think execution typically means it doesn't mean because you can spend a billion dollars a year or more on execution. I'm not making that number up because like, there's high frequency shops that will, you know, you can spend enormous amounts. You don't have to. I think the key is to not be the worst, you know, not be the fish that's constantly getting killed. Your job is to just kind of do okay. But it's a hard world because you're up against the smartest, the best resource, the richest people on the planet when you're going into execution land. And that is a mm -hmm. very significant and very important focus. And so I would just say the problem with just to come full circle, the problem with those low capacity trades is what you're really saying is expensive or hard to trade trades or you're, trying, you're running it to a size where it becomes expensive or hard to trade. And you go, um, maybe. But you've got to be super careful of your back test in that world. And, 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 and you've got to be like really really properly not going near the top end of those capacity because you start to push it you can really start to get yourself into trouble and then you gotta hope that there aren't other people also going into the same time as you in a similar manner and that's obviously the quant's real challenge is well let's say it's, it's once again it's a prisoner's dilemma you know for me I, like the right thing to do is to run this thing at 500 million dollars of assets because above that it starts to degrade risk and then some other gorilla comes in and runs it at two billion and kills it for both of you and you're like well i guess i should have taken it while i could have because at the end of the day it doesn't do me any good to, to, to be the, the good corporate citizen when someone else is going to come and eat it all and of course that leads to a very quick destruction of the commons and so and so that's ultimately that it's very very hard to know that it's being that thing that you found that other people may have also found isn't also being like overrun um, um so gents i you guys can i can say <laughs> i got out my wife just called me three times so clearly i'm needed to have some further drinks with the neighbors um but uh i'll let oh, you more guys... conversation you're like, like one that i'll be like, i've been, I've been I, I made i made promises man i made promises i said it was gonna be done at five on average and i told her schindler was on the call so it's gonna be probably another half an hour and now i'm going into 40 minutes done you know excellent but you guys can i think it's great because we you know we spent all this time talking about all the ways that you're not going to hit five percent so there's a whole other <laughs> podcast <laughs> on yeah, how you can actually hit five percent no, we said so the way to do it is to, to go out to do things that nobody else is doing for sure you're, you're well, right go find go find the stuff that we can't tell you about that we can't describe to you but where you've got smooth operators that you can trust i agree there you that's, go that's, yeah. Or 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 buy gold, and that's or another. <laughs> that's right. A lot of gold. Twenty percent gold and, and zero percent allocation to the. SUV. You just gave you just gave Phil Brick twenty more yeah. minutes of conversation. Yeah, yeah, let's go. I think we should zero out our, our S and P allocation. That should always be zero. Your optimization for the next fifteen years should just zero out the S and P and the Nasdaq, and put it towards gold. You'd be fine. Victor, Bitcoin has sharp ratio. Not advice. This is not advice. We're kidding. We're just kidding. Or, or, or the S and P goes straight up for the next ten. Years. I mean, like, like, look. A hundred percent could happen. Yeah. Don't know. So, so, so it's a it's a tricky world. This is why uh, this is ultimately why my portfolio construction is this and this and this, not ors. Like, I love the ands, not yeah. the ors, because I think that gives you the best fighting chance of because you don't know. Of course. And portfolio yes. construction is is about is about 
giving yourself as many ways to win and, and, and giving yourself the least number of ways to lose. And I think that's at the end of the day, it's, it's, and that's what you gotta be focusing on is what happens to the thing you don't expect to have happen happens. Do I have something in my portfolio that, that, that does okay in that world? And, and that's, and I think, like, you know, if you come full circle, that's ultimately what you're trying to do at the, at the, at the aggregate level. And, you know, and then alpha, alpha's hard. Amen. Stealing lunch on that <laughs> tough game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, good luck to the CIOs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll have more. We'll exactly. have more guidance for them as we go along. We'll have you back again in about six months. That's right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, listen, that was guys. wonderful as usual. Thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah. And thanks for everyone for sticking with us for an hour and 40 minutes. It's yeah. been like two people left. <laughs> 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 All right, Chris. All right. Enjoy Cheers. your weekend. Bye. Good weekend. See y'all. You. you too. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.